Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hindsight is 2200. As always, I'm your host, Chad Michael Bouton, and I want to thank you so much for coming back to another new episode. For those of you that missed the last episode, I sat down with a blind voice actor. That was really, really cool. Um, as someone who's really big into video games and anime, it was amazing to sit down with Ren Leach out of California to discuss his career as a voiceover um, actor um, who is visually impaired and, and it was just great to get to hear his process and his journey in the industry and what he's doing nowadays with audio description so it was it was great to talk to him and I got to be a big nerd which won't be really different today's episode I'm going to be a big nerd again because I'm going to be talking about video games uh, and accessibility and the great things that my guest has been doing as an advocate for accessibility in video games all the way from the UK, joining us across the pond, here is the great and powerful Ian Hamilton. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I always tell people, you know, get ready because I'm going to, you know, try and give you like the, the red carpet or like the championship boxing fight introduction. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I've never been introduced like that before. <laughs> I always love to hear people get a good chuckle from that. Hey, so thank you so much for making this work. You know, I know uh, you weren't feeling the greatest this uh, this week. So thank you so much for, you know, taking what time you have out of your busy schedule to talk to me. It's uh, great to get to talk to you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, if you wouldn't mind just, you know, giving a brief introduction to yourself to my listeners, I think that'd be a great way for us to start. Sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Ian. I am an accessibility specialist. Um, I've been working in the field of accessibility in video games for about 16 years. Initially, kind of alongside my regular day job duties and eventually moving more into it to the point where now it's all that I do. Mm -hmm. So that kind of covers two areas, advocacy and consulting. Mm -hmm. So advocacy is just like trying to raise awareness and knowledge right. across the industry and the gaming community about accessibility and why it matters through like writing, speaking, teaching events, mm. all that kind of stuff. Then the other side is consulting. So working directly with studios, publishers, industry bodies, platforms, and the rest um, directly on helping to raise the bar for inclusion. Absolutely. Um, it's It's been a crazy couple of like, I'd say five years <laughs> when it comes to the industry of video games. You know, you know we've really have seen a big boon um, when it comes to accessibility. I mean, um, I had the pleasure of talking to uh, an uh, acquaintance of yours, uh, Mr. Brandon Cole. Yes, um, I he, yes, yes. Um, he was telling me about how you you kind of put him on in the beginning and kind of helped him get his foot in the door with accessibility and help him, you know, do the great things that he got to do with The Last of Us Part Two. Um, you know, so that was great. And, um, you know, that's kind of where my journey started when it comes to getting back into video games is a uh, I had quit playing games because, um, you know, we weren't really in that big boom yet of seeing accessibility, you know, to a major level that someone like myself needed. And once The Last of Us Part Two kind of came around, you know, I kind of realized that um, companies, you know, especially Triple H Studios were kind of starting to understand that uh, there wasn't really enough being done to a level that some people needed. So it's been a crazy last couple of years because we've really have seen a lot of companies jump on the the bandwagon when it comes to making sure they're doing right by disabled gamers yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and it's it's been um 
been quite a standard process that studios mm. have been through so mm. if you go back um a few more years mm. uh, the biggest battle was one of awareness mm -hmm. um so many people just weren't aware that accessibility was even a thing and never even thought about that disabled mm. people might want to play a video game you know right um that battle's now been won mm -hmm. it's very hard to find somebody who hasn't at least heard of accessibility right uh, and increasing number of studios have been taking their first step um, which is something that happens in Naughty Dog terms with mm. Uncharted 4. Mm. So towards the end of development of Uncharted 4, a few people in the company start thinking about accessibility mm. and were able to get a couple of nice things done mm. in like the months before the game launched. Right. And um, that launched, got loads of good feedback. And for its day, um, mm -hmm. that was, right. it, was, it was quite innovative the stuff it was doing um it had like six or seven accessibility settings in there mm -hmm. um and that launched got all the good feedback and the reaction from the team was man if only you would have thought about this earlier we could have done so <laughs> much more we could have done it so much better and so much cheaper right so that's what they did um the last of us two rolled around and mm -hmm. um they were having those thoughts about uncharted 4 in mm. the early stages of development of the last of us two so they were able to think about it from early in development and they've mm. been quite open about that that is their secret source that allowed them to do what they did in the last of us two was mm -hmm. thinking about it from early in development and that's what we're seeing more and more it's that same pattern that studios go through of first probably thinking about accessibility mm. at some point late in development the next game thinking about it early so that's yeah. that's the real successes that we're seeing now. Um, games like um, not just Last of Us Two, but Spider-Man, mm. Miles Morales, yeah. um, Forza Horizon Five. Mm. These are other examples of games that are part of that second wave of accessibility in AAA games now. So it's going to be quite an exciting time over the over the coming year or two, seeing more and more of these studios who, rather than that first initial foray, mm. are actually now able to actually sit back and think about it properly, work it into their processes and workflows, and and engage with the community earlier development as well yeah it's it's really been great because like you said it kind of was almost an afterthought in the beginning you know it's kind of like oh well here we go we, we have these options that we could implement um you know the game's kind of already done but you know why don't we go ahead and add them and like you said now it's like from the beginning they're already thinking of what accessibility options they can put in and you know you're seeing more and more games you know like uh just last year, you know, Forza Horizon, you know, that was a really, really big one, especially with um, the deaf community, you know, that did so much when it came to the deaf community. Um, and, you know, like you said, uh, Miles Morales was another really big one, you know, that's very accessible. Um, you know, so how exactly did you get started as a advocate and a consultant? Um, of course, you've probably been a gamer for most of your life, but um you know, how did you take that passion for gaming and turn it into a career? Oh, so that's a few different questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so so gaming, yes, that was uh, my first game was uh, Galaxians on the Apple II in 1986. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, yeah, at the time, um, to six-year-old me, just mm -hmm. having, it was about having that agency, that mm -hmm. control over the environment, that blew my mind. And then as the years progressed, when we started getting into things like the Atari ST and the Amiga and the SNES, those kind of days mm -hmm. in like the early 90s, that's when it was kind of get the visual fidelity um, and the audio fidelity was getting to the stage where 
it became more about um, experiencing these incredibly realized worlds, mm-hmm. being able to experience things that you would never be able to do in real life. Right. Um, so to 11 year old me, that was equally mind blowing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so I s- professionally, um, I started out in working in web, mm-hmm. And eventually ended up working for um, the BBC on their children's content, which is a mix of web and games. Nice. And the BBC has a really strong accessibility culture Mm -hmm. because the BBC is publicly funded. um, Like the the public is basically a tax that the public in the UK has to pay. Um, So they are they have a obligation in their charter to return as much value as possible to the people who are paying that license fee, which includes people who are disabled. Um, so, so the BBC actually has a chartered obligation to make sure its content is accessible. So that's just part of everybody's job at the BBC is you have to think about accessibility. Um, it's just one of the basic onboarding things when anyone starts starts working there. So from the very start there, it was kind of part of my day duty, my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really, it, but, but it was just kind of like this thing that sat in the background, like a couple of boxes you have to tick, you know, just mm-hmm. to kind of this theoretical thing. Um, what actually really got me properly started was seeing some playtesting footage of some preschool games that had been adapted um, to work with just a single key press. Oh. And so these preschool games had quite simple controls anyway. It was a relatively simple thing to modify them to work with one and two key presses. And what that actually means is that those one or two key presses can be mapped onto your hardware devices um, called accessibility switches. They're called switches because it's anything that has a simple on-off signal, like closing a circuit. So that could be a, um, a big button on the table in front of you. It could be a button on the wheelchair headrest. It could be a tube to blow into. It could be an infrared blink detector. Anything at all that just sends like a single simple on-off signal. Um, so those are exactly the type of devices that the Xbox adaptive controller is designed to be compatible mm. with. And it's exactly the same technology that Stephen Hawking famously used to interact with technology. Um, so that, that simple design um, tweak actually made the games accessible with that type of accessibility hardware. And this playtesting footage I was seeing, um, when I was a kid myself, we had an exchange program with a school for disabled kids and I'd seen young children with that level of motor impairment in my own childhood um, who were basically just lying there at the back of the classroom as passive participants Um, and then through what I was seeing this video through the access to this technology um, just through that relatively small design tweak they were just like laughing and smiling and playing and doing the same things all the classmates equal Mm. participants in their society which was really mind blowing for me. That's what actually made it sense, made it make sense to me. So mm-hmm. it was no longer like, here's some checklist of things you have to do as part of your job. It's like, okay, I understand what this is for now. I'm just realizing that even though you go to work, the stuff you do is the same, but you just realize that the, there are actual consequences to the stuff you're thinking about, that those mm-hmm. every little design decision you make in your day-to-day job can actually have a really profound impact on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the first step was understanding the human benefit of accessibility. And then off the back of that, I started carving out my own time. BBC is quite good for letting you do that, carving out my own time to work on my own little side projects, working for that specific audience. Mm -hmm. Then the second step came a few years later, my career progressed a little bit further. And I was now acting as design um, sign-off point for um, 
games that are made by companies outside the BBC because the BBC mm. acts as a publisher as well, like a, like an EA or Ubisoft or something, you know. So there's all these other companies outside the BBC who make content that's published to them. Um, so I was seeing all these different companies, like they would put so much effort into like a tiny bit of polish on tight, some tiny little thing in the game, but then accidentally make their game a miserable experience um, for <laughs> the 8% of their male players who are colorblind because they're using red and green to differentiate um, right. between the chat or not, or um, because they're using like light gray text on a slightly less light gray background, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure you can relate to, right? <laughs> yes, so absolutely. It, and it's not intentional. I didn't want to exclude people. It's just mm-hmm. they didn't know better, right? So, so that was the second part of it, like, and because because my my job then was a um, designer, mm-hmm. and um, often what motivates um, designers is seeing something that is really annoyingly broken and feeling compelled to fix it and do it better. <laughs> uh, so that's what motivated me here, seeing something mm-hmm. that's clearly broken and needing to do something to fix it. So that's when I started tr- internally at the BBC working on like education and training and guidelines mm-hmm. stuff to try and help fix that problem a bit. And then, then the last step came a few years later again. Um, the BBC moved across the other side of the country. Um, I couldn't move with them because my wife was um, studying at the time. Um, so by this stage, accessibility was now an actual part of my job. Like mm-hmm. I had a set, like part of my week set aside is written into my responsibilities and everything. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of my job. So I started looking around to where else in the games industry I could just move to um, mm-hmm. in a similar role. And there was literally nowhere like that mm. didn't that concept didn't exist um so that really blew my mind um because like i had been working in um web accessibility as well mm. and that is just like a standard career path on web accessibility it's mm. like a recognized discipline um there's like whole massive industry conferences all about accessibility and stuff you know but in mm. games industry there was just like tumbleweeds yeah. um, so that that really i mean that's not the case now now mm. there's like 50 or so like full-time dedicated in-house accessibility roles across across various different studios but at the time mm-hmm. this was back in um like 2011 um, yeah yeah there was, there was nothing yeah. so that that was that's what really opened my eyes um and changed it from what i set out as looking at how can i move into another job that i find equally rewarding mm-hmm. changed it into advocacy instead so that's when i joined um all the other people who were already fighting to try and change the industry. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think how like in 2011, as much as they were advancing technology, um, you know, they were still so, so far away because, you know, it's just crazy to think, you know, of everything that we were doing technologically wise, um, we still weren't able to figure out accessibility. Um, So it's just interesting to kind of like think like, what really was taking them so long, you know? Because nowadays you see a game and like, you know, all some of the first things people are asking almost pretty much nowadays is what accessibility options do the game have? And, you know, it's become such like a actual, like almost requirement. <laughs> so it's just, it's just crazy to think, you know, almost 11 years now, um, we've seen so much different change and, um, you know, from, when you started and now, I mean, it has to be incredible to see um, just how much studios are doing nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And it feeds back in on itself. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like you said about expectations, because mm-hmm. the more that the more that studios do, mm-hmm. the more that players are exposed to. Mm-hmm. That means that 
things that were novel yesterday are expected tomorrow right and it also shifts the mentality amongst the general gaming community as well mm. yeah so if you take take for example the the ongoing i don't want to talk it too much because it's talked about far too much but <laughs> the, the discourse around um from's games right um, Ring and dark souls and stuff mm-hmm. when the, the the general argument that's brought up around the accessibility is like uh, like I'm totally cool with things like code blindness and remapping and this this but mm. you know it's just this thing that you shouldn't have whereas mm. if you go back then you don't have to go back too many years ago when those conversations were had about things like color blindness and remapping mm. like someone would post about being, not being able to play because they're colorblind and there'd be a delegate comments from people saying exactly the same kind of stuff that's said now about right. those games but about colorblindness like this would destroy the destroy the artist's creative vision mm. and games just aren't for you go and find another hobby and blah 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 mm. and the rest mm-hmm. of it um, so it so that exposure has helped to allay those fears. I think it's a bit of a kind of fear of the unknown, you know, mm-hmm. people making assumptions. And now that colorblind um, consideration has become more commonplace in games, mm-hmm. all these people who have those doubts have actually seen, okay, actually this didn't fundamentally break all the games. That thing I was so scared of, the thing I'm so passionate about and don't want to lose, actually I didn't lose it. Okay, maybe mm-hmm. this is cool after all, you know. Yeah. So there's that other side to it as well, as well as shifting the expectations of people who need those features, also shifting the understanding and acceptance of all those other players as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, again, like you said, you, we, we don't have to get really into it, but you know, the one thing I, I do think is, you know, um, I, I, do, I do hate when companies do say, oh, well, we didn't put accessibility options into our games because it would destroy our creative vision. Because uh, to me, it's kind of like, well, this one is kind of like a cop out to me, <laughs> just personally. But two, it's just like, um, why wouldn't you want to put accessibility options into your games, and why wouldn't you want to include people that otherwise can't play your games without those? You know, to me, it's kind of like, I don't feel like there should be any reason that you're not trying to include as many people as you can into any medium that you're creating or trying to introduce. So you know, to me, it's you know, it's kind of, eh when it comes to that type of stuff. <laughs> and that's the thing, it's generally not studios who are saying it, it's mm-hmm. gamers saying that studios are thinking it, but the studio right. actually, studios actually aren't, you know? Right, right, it's, yeah. it's the gamers making assumptions saying mm-hmm. you know, that this this would destroy the studio's vision. On the other hand, the, other hand, the developers are there saying like, there was a nice like I'm Spartacus type moment um, <laughs> a few years back when um, there was, in part of these discussions, there, were, there was a guy who said like, developers can't consider accessibility because it would destroy their creative vision for their game. Mm-hmm. And um, that guy had um, as his Twitter profile picture, um, Kratos, the lead character out of God of War. Yeah. Um, so in response to his tweet, um, the creative director of God of War um, replied to him saying, accessibility has never and will never um, be a barrier to my creative vision mm-hmm. and then another developer saw this um copy and pasted it tweeted it <laughs> and another another and it just turned into this massive outpouring all across the industry of all these developers saying no accessibility is not in conflict with our creative mm-hmm. vision that's not what accessibility is you know because it's not it's not it's not about mm-hmm. the kind of things people worry about about diluting things and breaking things it's about mm-hmm. ensuring yeah that more people have access to that vision you know that mm-hmm. more people have the kind of experience that you imagine your players having 
Yeah. And, and it's and it's it's about the emotional experience as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Gamers often often misunderstand their thinking that like the actual game itself, the way it's published is mm. the vision. It's not mm. the vision is what players experience and the game itself is the framework to try and enable people to have that kind of experience. So it's just about optimizing that framework, mm-hmm. making sure that more and more players are actually able to have the kind of experience that developers want them to. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautifully put, yeah. Because to, to me, video games have always been a way to cope with my vision loss. And, you know, it's funny when I tell people, like, the, the best thing that I had for my depression and my anxiety and, and even my mental health were, were video games. Because they laugh and they say, well, you kind of use the most visually thing you could find to cope. And I'm like, yeah, but it's the experience. Um it was the story, it was the characters, you know, for me to be able to pretend I was Link from The Legend of Zelda or um, a trainer from Pokemon or, you know, Master Chief or Kratos, you know, to me, it was just a, a window of time where I was no longer who I was in the real world and could just experience these stories and these characters that otherwise, I well, one, I could never be. <laughs> um, but two, that... I wanted to be <laughs> uh, because, you know, they, they weren't me and they weren't dealing with my circumstances. Yeah. And that's important. And mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly why accessibility is important. Accessibility mm-hmm. is important because games are important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, you know, I can't, you know, tell you how many times, like, you know, like a game's made me cry or I've connected with a character just because the way that the, the writers have written that character, um, you know, I know some people think it's funny when you say, you know, like video games have, you know, transformed me, but I mean, video games are art, they are transformative works, um, and they can make a very big impact in someone's life. And um, that's why um, I think accessibility is so option because we shouldn't um, dismiss the positive impacts that video games can have to someone, um, whether it be emotionally or mentally. Yeah, I think another related um, thing to that is the cultural significance of games. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a couple of years now since I looked up the data, but I remember looking up date, sales data. And um, this was at the time that Rogue One came out mm-hmm. um, on Blu-ray. And I remember um, both FIFA in the UK, both FIFA and Call of Duty um, sold more copies than Rogue One. So games are literally bigger than Star Wars, you know. <laughs> That's the thing, they're such a massive part of our culture. Yeah. If it's something that all your friends are doing, all your friends are talking about, mm-hmm. it's plastered all over every form of media, all the adverts mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, God, who hasn't seen an advert for Destiny on TV? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy it, to see how big that game's gotten. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, when the first one came out, I remember mm-hmm. it was just wall-to-wall TV, TV advertising for that game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing, because there's such saturation of it in our culture and our society. Mm-hmm. Um, being cut off from that is a huge deal culturally. Mm-hmm. It's like if you were told, well, you've got brown hair, so you're not allowed to see Star Wars. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. That's a great example. <laughs> but on the other hand, that means that, that if you can have access to them, and games can actually be a really, really powerful tool for inclusion in culture and in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about the, the work that you're, uh, you're doing nowadays, you know, of course, as uh, you know, you, you, of course, you know, 
you're, you know, I feel like for most of us, you know, we were, we were a gamer first. So, you know, we, we are passionate about games. Um, and then of course we are passionate about the community that we're servicing. Um, so for you, what has just been the greatest benefit of being a consultant when it comes to the, the industry? Um, I think the, um, I mean, it's, it's nice seeing the, the actual progress that's made mm -hmm. in games, but for me, it's less about the games and more about the end result. It's about mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, seeing the impact that it has on the players, but on the other hand, seeing the impact it has on developers as well. Mm -hmm. uh, people coming to that understanding getting excited about it seeing things understanding things in a new way seeing things that help themselves and and help themselves be more creative and expressive and get their ideas out to broader mm -hmm. audiences as well and um one thing on that note of people that always gets me is is making connections between people as well mm -hmm. and that is something that i think is so so important if you're working in advocacy is mm -hmm. um, community building because if you think how much how much good you can do in the space of five minutes of working on something mm -hmm. is not very much. <laughs> but if you spend five minutes introducing two people together, mm -hmm. amazing, amazing things can come from that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's what I spend a lot of time doing, like trying to trying to build a community, introducing mm -hmm. like minded people together to to each other. And mm -hmm. and I think, well, he's a perfect example of that was um uh, this this story you were telling earlier um, about Brandon. Um, mm -hmm. So, so and the Last of Us Two. So how that actually came about was through a conference um, that a couple of us run called um, GA Conf, mm -hmm. which is a developer conference solely on um, game accessibility. And uh, we got Brandon speaking, mm -hmm. and we got um, Naughty Dog speaking. So they were giving a talk about Uncharted Four. Um, Brandon was up before um, they were. So he was like second class speaker, they were the last mm -hmm. speaker. Um, he started this talk with saying, um, hashtag opening for Naughty Dog. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, Brandon's a funny guy, so I'm sure you he have is. a podcast. He is, he's, he's great. But yeah, so, so, he's, so, so he finished up his talk saying, was saying like someday I'd love to be able to, to play a game um, like Uncharted 4. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Naughty Dog got up to speak. And at the end of their talk, they said, well, you know, um, I don't know if it would be possible for a game like Uncharted or The Last of Us to be accessible to somebody who's blind, but mm -hmm. but we'd like to find out. Mm -hmm. And then, sure enough, there is Brandon in the credits. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so that's that's a really powerful role that that conference has. Um, mm -hmm. There've been lots of other examples of that, of really really beautiful things that have happened as a result of people just being in the same space and communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. and so much good can come just from just from conversations, you know. Absolutely. So that's really about that conference being a way to do that on a wider level to help, like I said, foster that community and build those mm -hmm. connections between people. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice that accessibility is a topic that um, seems to allow people to do that. Um, that allows people to step around the kind of traditional borders and boundaries that there are with the industry. People mm -hmm. seem much more willing to communicate and collaborate both within their own companies and across different companies as well when mm -hmm. it comes to accessibility. Um, well, case in point, last, The Last of Us 2 again. Um, mm -hmm. When The Last of Us 2 came out, um, Phil Spencer was taking to Twitter to congratulate Naughty Dog on the accessibility work in it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So this is the head of Xbox right. congratulating a PlayStation exclusive. <laughs> that does not happen very often. Yeah. You know? yeah. Accessibility is a topic that enabled that conversation to happen, you know? Yeah. And that happens all the time on much smaller level as well. People across different companies collaborating and sharing knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of great to see that um, it's something that can make it to basically, to, you know, you have your direct competitor being like, you know, great job, you know, thank you for helping make, you know, a great step forward for all video games. So, you know, it's just great that accessibility can kind of be that bridge, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, cause you know, it, everyone wins when it comes to accessibility, honestly. Yeah, there was a nice quote again from the conference that was from John Knowles, who's, um, I think he's design director on um, the Forza games. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll try and remember the exact quote. He said, um, it's like there is a race to build the most accessible game. <laughs> and I know a thing or two about racing. And I can tell <laughs> you this is a race that everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's perfectly put. <laughs> I love that he used racing too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about um, your process when it comes to um, like accepting work. Um, is, is there ever like any way like you approach, you know, because I have to imagine you get approached quite a lot when it comes to consulting. Um, so um, what exactly is your process when it comes to accepting, you know, a new job? If you, if, if that's something you can share, of course. Um, there is not a great deal of standardized process because mm-hmm. what everybody needs is completely different depending gotcha. on what, what the gotcha. game they're making, mm-hmm. um, what mm-hmm. the mechanics are, what their, their culture and internal politics are, like all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. So the only real standard process is just that initial kind of coaching process of Mm -hmm. just sitting down with someone and feeling out what exactly the shape of the problem is that they need to solve from there and that can be anything it can be so varied it can be anything from advice on a specific on a specific Mm -hmm. um, workflow process issue Mm -hmm. um, helping out with um, how to uh, recruit people, recruit participants for user research, mm-hmm. um, doing hands-on design work on a specific feature, doing a full audit of a build, um, all kinds of stuff. It's really, really varied. So, gotcha. so yeah, that, that's, the, that's, that's the first step is always just mm-hmm. sitting down and sitting down with someone and just having a good chat, which is, like I said, it's kind of coaching. So coaching mm-hmm. in terms, coaching is basically means you are kind of helping to encourage them to talk you know mm-hmm. so it's not really so much about me so they may have a couple of questions about kind of like the way i work and stuff but gotcha. i'm pretty comfortable in those terms there's not so much for me to say on that it's more about me trying to like get them to talk about what kind of st- what kind of barriers they're coming up against and once we've established that we can figure out the best ways to help gotcha gotcha i've just always been interested in you know how you know people like yourself and mr cole you know approach you know, or like what like you know you're you know basically entering into like you know partnership as you know i've always found that interesting as someone who hopes to one day get to your kind of level <laughs> so i've always yeah, so spent... it, it, it is always people coming to me as well mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's people i've people have known i mean like example i can't tell the name of the company because it's all <laughs> yeah of course india's so, yeah yeah so there was um Back about 10 years ago, um, I was 
working with um, a frequent collaborator, collaborator of mine called um, Tara Valka on mm. getting some accessibility challenges happening as part of Global Game Jam, which mm -hmm. is this huge worldwide um, hackathon. And there was a small venue in London at this, this um, further education college that was taking part. So mm. I went along and um, gave them a little talk and stuff. And then 10 years later, the college um, tutor who had been running that Game Jam site sent me an email. Um, they were no longer a college tutor. They were now a like lead programmer at one of the um, biggest, um, No, I won't say that. At a, at, <laughs> at a, at a major game publisher, anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, since, since they were quite high up in the major games publisher and um, we're trying to get an accessibility initiative started there. Um, so got in touch with me. So that's quite often the house things that happen. It'd be like some conversation that happened with someone years ago, but mm -hmm. they all of a sudden come in this position, came to this position where, and it's always one of two things. It's either um, they don't have enough um, experience and expertise internally, mm -hmm. So I need some help from somebody who has, or they do have that, but they don't have enough resource. So they've got mm. this kind of stuff, but they're just too flat out to do the amount of work they need. So they need a bit of help with resources. It's one of those two things. Gotcha. Um, yeah, they get they get in that position, and then be like, okay, we've got this problem we need solving. Who might be able to help out with this? And then think mm. of people they know. Mm -hmm. So it's all about that. So so it's so it's never me contacting people. It's always right. people right. contacting me. Makes sense. I know that's not the same for everyone. Some some people do have the approach of um, proactively contacting companies, but for mm. me, it's the other way Gotcha. Makes sense. Completely understand. Um, so, um, what exactly do you think has been the biggest shift in um, developers' way of thinking? Um, do you think they finally just realized that um, you know everybody wins when it comes to accessibility, or was there? Was there some type of advancement in the technology that led to more companies seeing that they could implement accessibility into their games? I'm just interested as someone who's been in this field for you know many, many years, um, if you feel like there's been kind of a, a, a reason for the shift, so to speak. So what you're describing, a technological, sh technological shift um, that will have a profound impact. Um, mm -hmm. That shift exists, mm -hmm. but it exists in the future. Gotcha. So it hasn't happened yet. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so there's, that's, that will come with um, mm -hmm. engines. So mm -hmm. Unreal and Unity um, account for um, the vast majority of game development. Gotcha they currently have very little in terms of accessibility they could be huge enablers mm -hmm. um, that that is starting to shift um, so mm -hmm. unreal have done have started doing a couple of nice things they have um, uh, implemented like an early experimental version of cross-platform screen mm -hmm. reader support um, not suitable for general usage yet but the work mm -hmm. is being done um, unity um, currently have three job ads out um, for a technical um, project manager and two software engineers to work solely on accessibility. Oh, and both wow. of them making the Unity editor itself accessible to disabled developers and also developing tools to do the heavy lifting of implementing accessibility as well. So, mm -hmm. so that technological shift is coming. And mm -hmm. If it's done properly, then that will be profound, specifically for text to speech, I think. 
Mm-hmm. So if you're developing like a native iOS app, um, it just works by default. So that shift will be particularly pronounced when it comes to screen reader accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at iOS, for example, if you develop a native iOS app, mm-hmm. it's just accessible by default. Mm-hmm. Um, all the labels and stuff of the interface elements are just automatically exposed to the screen reader. Mm-hmm. This is why so many iOS apps are like kind of or mostly accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get to be properly accessible unless the developers put some work into it, but right. you do get the base level. Um, so that's really where games need to be. Mm-hmm. That would make the work of advocates and developers so much easier. Mm-hmm. If the If the question was no longer like, um, excuse me, your game has zero blind accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, how about making it blind accessible? And then they go away and look at the technology and find out it doesn't support it. Instead, the conversation becomes um, that interface element over there isn't mm-hmm. labeled properly. Like mm-hmm. that's a whole different level of conversation. Um, so if if Unity in particular could sort out screen reader support, then mm-hmm. that would mean like two thirds of the games developed would go from zero blind accessibility to mm-hmm. like two thirds blind accessibility overnight, right. which would be quite epic. So that that's the kind of technology technology shift that could happen in future, mm-hmm. um, but currently hasn't yet. Um, the shift so far have been in other ways. Um, there's been initially all of the grueling, bankless, lonely years of advocacy work that so many advocates put on put in. Uh, mm-hmm. bending individual developers' ears to try and let people know that accessibility exists and try mm-hmm. and get people to care about it, um, which has now been successful, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one shift is in awareness. Another one has been in uh, influential games. So um, each game that comes out that has nice stuff in there um, doesn't just drive progress in itself. It mm-hmm. raises awareness. Like mm-hmm. I said, shifting expectations amongst players but also amongst other developers as well, especially when it comes to high profile games. Um, Mm -hmm. So three games in particular that had monumental impact were um, Uncharted 4. Mm -hmm. Um, That had huge impact across um, AAA games. Um, That was what really started the ball rolling there. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was another big publisher um, that had like a big wave of accessibility awareness um, come off the back of that game. And they actually called it the Uncharted effect (laughs) <laughs> like accessibility awareness in their company mm-hmm. um, so that and then later on um the last of us 2 mm-hmm. um that sent huge waves in terms of AAA developers realizing that a game of that complexity could be accessible to people who are blind mm-hmm. that huge influence in that area and also on the indie side um celeste mm-hmm. um celeste mm-hmm. has a few just a number of accessibility considerations but that had a massive impact uh, there's so so many other indie games that have taken what celeste did and built upon that for their own games um yeah i think another really important area has been legislation mm-hmm. so there was a, a piece of legislation in the usa that was enacted in 2010 called cbaa which is the snappily named 21st century communications video <laughs> Uh, Communications and Video Accessibility Act. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the purpose of this legislation was to close some loopholes because like for since the ADA came about, Mm -hmm. um, access to um, telecommunications, so like TV and phones and stuff has been a legally protected right of disabled people. So like, for example, if you want to um, 
start a telephone network, you have to provide functionality for people who can't speak or can't hear um, mm -hmm. to be able to use that phone phone network with like this technology to do that, you know. Um, but they realized that um, as the years have gone on, uh, there's been these big loopholes appearing because people aren't using phones to communicate anymore. They're mm -hmm. using uh, Skype and Zoom and WhatsApp and stuff. Mm -hmm. And people aren't watching um, like broadcast TV channels anymore. They're watching <laughs> like Netflix and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. So they brought in this extra legislation to help close those loopholes and, and make sure these new technologies were covered as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that all forms of digital communication, so whether that is text chat, voice chat, video chat, um, are required to be accessible now. And that includes when they appear in games. Mm -hmm. The games industry had a bit of a grace period to try and figure out how to go about implementing this. That ran out on the, um, I think it was the 1st of January 2019. So since that point, um, games have been required to ensure that the communication functionality and any interface that's needed to navigate to and use that functionality, like getting mm -hmm. through the menus and stuff, has to be accessible to a whole bunch of different disabilities, including people who are blind. Um, so that was a, a huge um, contributor to the development of things like text scaling and mm -hmm. text-to-speech functionality in games. Um, so I was um, a bit reticent about this when it happens. Um, <laughs> people generally do their best work when they want to rather than mm. told that they have to, but mm -hmm. I've been very, very pleasantly surprised. And I think it's a real testament to, to the games industry and the kind of people who work in it. Mm -hmm. That basically has a few benefits. Firstly, um, people like struggling away at grassroots level, like trying to get their voices heard about accessibility, all of a sudden were finding that all their bosses had heard about accessibility. Right. Like because of CVA, it's like a topic that they're familiar with. So that made those conversations easier. And it also meant that other developers who have always been who like were aware of accessibility and kind of always wanted to do something about it but never really got around to it. Now, because they had to do something about it for this very small slice of their game, the communication functionality, they're like, well, okay, now the accessibility is properly on the table. Right, how are we going to do this properly? How are we going to go mm -hmm. beyond the compliance and make sure that our players actually have a good experience? You know, so so that's been a huge, huge driver of both awareness and progress, um, way, way beyond what it actually requires, that small bit of compliance. Mm -hmm. um, so so there, there's, there's been a lot of these various different influences over the years. I think another one, just in terms of awareness, that accessibility is even a thing, was mm -hmm. the launch of the Xbox Adaptive Controller that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. In particular, they had two things. They had a... Um, a holiday video like all the big companies do um, mm -hmm. about it. that was a Microsoft's holiday video for that year was just about the adaptive controller. They also, showed, same bit, yep, they also showed that at Super Bowl. Oh so, yeah, they did. Yeah. And um, there was a lot of money that it cost to advertise mm -hmm. a Super Bowl and they bought mm -hmm. a double length slot to advertise it. And that was seen by um, 100 million people yeah. um, just watching Super Bowl, let alone all the other people who watched that on YouTube and stuff afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this, this included so many people who've never thought about accessibility ever in their lives. And their very first exposure to accessibility was thinking, oh, my God, this is awesome. Yeah. And like um, the U.S. Surgeon General was tweeting about it. T-Pain was tweeting about it. <laughs> Cher was tweeting about it. You know, if I could send that back in time to myself a couple of years previously, the idea that like 100 million people watching the video about a switch interface yeah. and like all these celebs were tweeting and everyone was like, especially on YouTube, you know what but... YouTube green sections are like, a retro <laughs> like just 
reams and reams of just nothing but positive comments. It yeah. was really beautiful thing to see. And it raised a massive amount of awareness amongst developers as well. Mm. So yeah, I don't think you could really put your finger on a single thing that mm -hmm. caused this change. It's been an incremental thing of lots and lots and lots of things happening, but yeah. it's now exponential. So like now the momentum is there, it's just building faster and faster and faster. So mm -hmm. the progress we saw in the last year was much more than the previous year, which right. in turn was much more than the previous year. So it's just going to keep on accelerating. So have good hopes for the future. Absolutely. And just to speak about the future, um, what do you think we need to continue to do to ensure that uh, accessibility continues to um, progress even further? Um, is, you know, does it come from exposure? Um, is it education? Um, I mean, I think those two records are always going to be important when it comes to accessibility. Um, but what do we do to make sure that um, accessibility reaches that next stage? Um, part of it is, is solely on the developer side, working mm -hmm. on workflow and process, get, getting things happening earlier in development, um, like I mentioned earlier. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it is, though, the relationships with the broader gaming community. Um, developers are in increasing numbers um, opening up to that, wanting to speak to um, mm -hmm. disabled players, whether it's in terms of actually getting people in for workshops or through general playtesting or just wanting to hear from people on social mm -hmm. media and stuff, you know. So, so I think that's a really important side of it is keeping that conversation going, keeping mm -hmm. the conversation going between developers and gamers in both directions. And also keeping the conversation going between gamers in general, keeping mm -hmm. that awareness going and, and shifting those expectations. And, and like I said, for people who don't have any accessibility needs themselves, um, educating people, showing people um, mm -hmm. how cool this stuff is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I won't keep you for too much longer. I know you got a meeting coming up very shortly, um, but before I let you go, I would love to let people know how they can follow everything that you're doing. And um, if they have any questions, where's the best place to go to uh, get your insight? Um, the best place is always Twitter. You can mm. find me there on at Ian Hamilton underscore. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so, so much for taking um, time out of your very busy schedule to talk to me today. Um, it was amazing to speak with you. Apologies for the lawn mowing. I don't control my HOA, <laughs> uh, but you are you are a complete professional. You, you did not even let that hiccup you at all so i appreciate you so much for sitting down with me today it's um it's amazing um you've been nothing but kind to me um you allowed me an opportunity to uh take part in a study with a pretty major um studio so um thank you so much for being that um that person in the community that is bringing us together and just giving us opportunities to uh do what you're doing and just make this a better place for everybody so uh, you know just thank you so much how oh, well i try you know <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Um, good luck with the meeting, and hopefully we can talk again later. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Um, I will say goodbye, and I will also say goodbye to all of my lovely listeners. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and hearing what I had to say with Mr. Ian Hamilton. Again, he is on Twitter if you would like to follow him and ask him any questions. But if you're shy and want me to pass along a question for him, you can email me at cmbouton, B-O-U-T-O-N, cmbouton at yahoo.com. And of course, you can always see what's going on with the podcast over on Twitter at 2200 Hindsight. That's all I have for today. Thank you so much. And I'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>